This is Christopher L. Bennett, and you're listening to The Captain's Table. Welcome to The Captain's Table at 10 Forward. Welcome to the Captain's Table, where we have intimate chats with those who have shaped Star Trek with words. I'm Cena, and I'm in Texas, and with me is Michael. Hi, Michael. How are you doing? Hi, Cena. Really well, thanks. And with us this week, we're really excited to have with us author Christopher L. Bennett. Hi, Chris. Hello, Michael and Cena. Welcome to the show. We really appreciate your time this evening. Uh, thank you. Oh, it's great to have you here. And we're really looking forward to talking about some of your Star Trek work, some of your Marvel work, and certainly going to talk about your um, novel, Only Superhuman, as well. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Chris. All right. Thank you. So jumping straight in, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, including how did you discover Star Trek? I'm uh, I'm a writer. <laughs> you know that. I live in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I've lived all my life and where I when I was five years old, uh, saw some commercials on TV for a show called Star Trek, and it looked to me like it was about a very strangely shaped airplane that only flew around at night, <laughs> and because there were all those stars in the background, and I wanted right. to know oh. what that was about, and so I watched, and it was the Corbomite Maneuver, which was actually the first episode they filmed after the pilots, and it was the first episode I saw, and I was hooked ever since. And that got me interested in space and science and science fiction. And I, after that, I guess my course was pretty much set. Who did you particularly enjoy when you were growing up reading? Well, I got into uh, mainly uh, Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, the, uh, the giants of, of hard science fiction. And that was a major influence. I, I, I consider myself a hard science fiction writer. As readers of my Star Trek stuff will know, it tends to be more toward the hard science side than uh, most Star Trek, but I managed to make it work. You've actually mentioned in a previous interview that, and to quote, one thing I've realized about myself is that it's hard for me to write about something unless I have at least a rough understanding of how and why it could happen. Can you expand upon that a bit for us, please? Well, I'm just, I'm a very analytically minded person. I need to know the whys and wherefores of things and it's often very useful to me to uh, i often get my ideas by beginning with the the science and uh, figuring out something how something would work and realizing that there is a consequence to that that could produce an interesting story like my first um the first story i sold to analog magazine in 1998 called aggravated vehicular genocide i got that idea from thinking about slower than light starships that would travel at near the speed of light using ramjets and because at that speed you'd need well basically what what star trek had the navigational deflector to uh keep debris from hitting you at those speeds and what what they would probably use is a powerful laser that would fire ahead of the ship and like destroy oncoming asteroids and i thought what if what passed in front of the ship and got blasted by the laser was another ship or a space habitat and that was where the story came from. Like what happens when a human ramjet crew destroys an alien habitat by accident and has to uh, 
be put on trial for that. And so the story came from the science. Going back to the beginning, when, when did you know you wanted to become a writer? Oh, well, I was about 13. I, I had this set of what were called Star City building blocks that were basically like Legos, but more futuristic looking. And I built these little cities out of them and made aliens out of my father's pipe cleaners and just sort of uh, made up these stories about them. And one day I just I made up a whole story beginning to end just sitting there, not not actually playing with the toys at all, just entirely in my mind. And then I, I when I was done with that, I realized, hey, I just wrote a story and I liked it. <laughs> and that's when I started to realize uh, what I wanted to be. I saw this quote on your website. I often made up Trek Universe stories set a century after Kirk adventures. And, and then you have in brackets an idea years ahead of its time, which it was. How often did you write these sort of stories and, and did any of those go into future novels that you did actually write? Well, these uh, these weren't things I wrote. These were just my, my the, the childhood daydreams no. that I was talking about. And, and it, But it wasn't long. It was like less than a year before I got tired of the – before I started to find the, the Star Trek-iness of it to be limiting and and, and I to my imagination. And, and I just – I started coming up with – well, making it more scientific, like relying less on humanoid aliens, coming up with more interesting uh, exotic aliens, and ju- just basically taking the stories in my own directions. And that was the beginning of uh, what developed into my, my main original universe, which is where uh, my first couple of stories in Analog were set and where only Superhuman is set, although it, it was quite a long road from getting from there to here, as somebody once sang. <laughs> yeah, so... You're a full-time writer now, isn't it, if I'm right in saying. What was it like making that jump to become a full-time writer? Well, it, it's more like I never really was a full-time anything else, <laughs> except a student. And I, I worked in college, but I've always pretty much just tried to make it go of it as a writer. And I, I wish I were as full-time a writer as I'd like to be, because then i get writing done. <laughs> Moving on, let's let's talk a little about Marvel. You've written for both um, Spider-Man and and the X-Men. What was it like writing for these amazing characters? It was it was kind of, it was fun. I was asked by my editor at Pocket Books at the time, Marco Palmieri, who edited my Star Trek stuff. There, uh, Pocket was doing a line of Marvel novels, and I was invited to participate, and I, I jumped at the chance. I, I've been a fan of X-Men and Spider-Man since the the animated series in the 90s on Fox Network. So I, I actually, uh, Marco would have expected me to go in for a Fantastic Four thing because he figured that was more up my alley as a space and science kind of guy. But really, at the time, I only knew Fantastic Four from the television shows, which weren't very good. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so yeah, I said, I want to do X-Men, I want to do Spider-Man. I, th- I was going to do the Spider-Man first, but then I was asked to do an X-Men novel as a, as a tie-in with X3, the, the Last Stand, which was coming out well around the time I would have been done with it. I put my Spider-Man plans on hold. I did the X-Men book, uh, Watchers on the Walls, it's called. And then afterwards, I got a chance to do my Spider-Man novel, Drowned in Thunder, after that. that they actually rejected my first uh, Spider-Man idea, which was I wanted to have Spider-Man go to another planet and be be out of his comfort zone and, and admittedly more in mine. <laughs> but uh, Marvel thought that was too much of a departure, so I had to come up with a different idea that became Ground and Thunder. Are you actually a, a comic book fan? Do you, do, did you read comics growing up or do you still read comics today? 
Well, I, as I said, I mainly knew the characters at that time from the animated yeah. shows, but I, I threw myself into the research. I read all the comics I could get my hands on, which for the X-Men wasn't as many as I should have, as I, as I ideally could have. So there were a few uh, continuity glitches here and there, although actually some of, one of the continuity tweaks was intentional because I wanted a certain uh, arrangement of characters that I couldn't quite get if I stayed exactly in keeping with the comics continuity. But my advice from my instructions from my editor were just to make it a standalone story and not be too worried about continuity, although I ultimately did put in a lot of continuity anyway. But for my Spider-Man novel for Drowned in Thunder... I was able to get my hands on a uh, DVD-ROM containing the entire run of Amazing Spider-Man up to that point, and I was also able to get uh, to read a lot of other Spidey comics from the library and take advantage of a helpful website called spiderfan.org that had summaries of most of the comics I couldn't find. So I was able to be much more uh, exhaustive in my research on that one. I got some uh, praise for that in some of the reviews I read. It seems as though there's a big resurgence of superheroes nowadays and reboots and everything. Is there a superhero that you haven't written about that you would like to write about? Uh, well, I I would like to write Superman. Definitely, that's uh, my alley. He's probably the first superhero, him and Batman, that I was aware of. And I, I, like, I like heroes who are heroic. I'm, I'm not that fond of your dark anti-hero types. I, I like heroes that you can admire and look up to and trust and believe in. And so Superman is definitely something I would want to go for given the opportunity. Just kind of a little off topic here, but speaking of, of animated, do have you watched the animated series, the Star Trek animated series, and do you like it or not? Oh, yes. I discovered the animated Star Trek just like probably just a few weeks after I discovered the live-action one in reruns, because this was this was in early 1974 when the animated series was still at first run on NBC. And so I kind of I, I kind of grew up thinking of Star Trek as being simultaneously live-action and animated. They were both part of the same whole to me. And, of course, Filmation, the studio that made that show, they also made most of the other cartoons that I loved on Saturday mornings growing up. So they had a lot of influence on me. And it was uh, it was just last week that Filmation's founder, Lou Scheimer, passed away. And that was uh, sad to hear because he had such an influence. He, he probably had more influence on me in my childhood than anyone other than Gene Roddenberry, at least where the media are concerned. Moving away slightly from Marvel, your blog is very active. And, and I've been looking at your blog over the last few weeks. And I actually follow your blog now. It's really enjoyable. You've actually written some pieces on The Man from Uncle. I absolutely love The Man from Uncle. And, you know, I used to watch that with, with my late father. And are you a big fan of the series then? And do you still watch well, it? Well, I'm, I'm still working my way through the DVDs. I have not uh, seen it before. Except I, I saw the reunion movie, the 15 years later affair, when it came out in the 80s. But this is actually my first time discovering the uh, original show. I was I've, I've always been curious about it, and this was my chance. I, I liked the first season pretty much. I'm finding the second season not quite up to the same standard, and I've heard horror stories about the third season. I'm not even sure I'm going to go through with that one. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's go into Star Trek. So my first question has to be. What makes a good Star Trek novel for you? 
Hmm, good question. Well, well, it needs to be true to uh, what Star Trek is, which the the values, the principles that these are not just shoot 'em ups or action stories. These are stories about people who solve problems with their wits and their compassion. There there can be action and violence, but usually it's not the solution. It's just a complication. Uh, and of course, uh, the characters are important. You need to be true to the characters and. Uh, to the humanity of them, even the, even the non-human ones, and for me, uh, I I want it to be plausible. I believe that Gene Roddenberry, although he often fell short of this ideal, always wanted Star Trek to be a believable, naturalistic uh, depiction of the future. He he wanted to get away from the the fanciful, cartoony, kid-oriented stuff like Lost in Space. That was that was pretty much all you could get outside of anthologies like The Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits in science fiction television at the time. And he wanted to do science fiction that was just as naturalistic and believable as any adult Western or cop show or lawyer show of the day. He was probably one of, one of the first real screen science fiction producers to consult with scientists and engineers and think tanks and try to develop a plausible version of the future, although he certainly took a lot of poetic license and made uh, some mistakes in his interpretation, but he always at least aspired to naturalism and credibility, and I, I think that, and I always try to approach my Star Trek fiction in the same vein, the same spirit. How did you begin writing for Pocket Books, and how did you get to write your first Star Trek novel? Well, I got lucky there. I came along at a time when they were actively seeking new talent. I actually, it started by by my joining the the Trek BBS online bulletin board. It's Trek Literature Forum. At the time, a lot of the Pocket Books editors frequented that forum, and I just established myself there and made it known that I was a writer and that I knew my Star Trek. Uh, at the time, Pocket had an ebook series called Star Trek SCE, standing for Starfleet Corps of Engineers, edited by uh, Keith R.A. DeCandido, who's now a good friend of mine, and and he was also a regular poster on the board at that point. And uh, one day he just, he invited me to pitch ideas. He invited a lot of people to pitch ideas for SCE. I think Pocket was using it as sort of a testing ground for new writers, and I got to be one of them. So I pitched uh, an idea, and Keith bought it, and that was Aftermath was the title. I really enjoyed that. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to let you know, I just really enjoyed that. I enjoyed all the stories for SCE, but especially in the aftermath of that big tragedy. After that, that led Marco Palmieri, who was the, uh, he was editing a Deep Space Nine anthology, the, the Prophecy and Change anthology, shortly thereafter. And after I did Aftermath, after, 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 he uh, invited me to pitch for the anthology. And I, uh, sub- I submitted a ver- variety of pitches. And the one he chose was called Love, Die, Not Honor More, which was a sequel to the Deep Space Nine episode, uh, looking for Parmach in all the wrong places. That episode had Quark sort of uh, getting together with the Klingon woman Grilka who had uh, previously been in the episode The House of Quark, and they sort of ended up together at the end, but then Grilka totally disappeared from the series without explanation. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to explain that, and that's what I did. I mean, the, the brief for that anthology was to fill in the gaps in Deep Space Nine's otherwise tight continuity, find the, 
the the things that that weren't explained that that didn't quite fit together continuity wise and after that once i'd done something for marco i asked him hey would you like to see this uh, star trek novel idea that i've always wanted to do and he said sure and that was uh, ex machina or it became ex machina once i fleshed it out i've i've always wanted i've always been a fan of star trek the motion picture and i was always disappointed that the the novels, even the few novels that did come out that were set after Star Trek The Motion Picture, they didn't really follow up on its character arcs and its ideas, like, like, like Spock's life-changing epiphany about how, hey, emotion is not a bad thing, it's a necessary and important thing, and it can be integrated with logic. And that, that was actually, he, when that movie came out, I was going through some uh, emotional issues of my own and, and i think his the, the, that movie actually helped me sort through them by using spock as a role model and so that was always important to me and i always wanted to follow through on that and explore spock's journey further and, and also the other characters journey journeys like from from where they were before star trek the motion picture to where they were at the end of the movie to where they eventually ended up in the wrath of khan and i thought there was an untold story there and so that was Ex Machina, and I and Marco liked it, and he published it, and I have always been very grateful for that because it's a story I always wanted to tell. I have to say that I really, really enjoyed that that story. I'm a big fan of the time between the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan, the the second five year mission, and. I'm a big comic fan and the comics have done quite a few stories within the motion picture and someone recommended the book to me and I just fell in love with it straight away. It was absolutely brilliant and I really enjoyed it because this obviously for the listeners is a follow up to um, The World is Hollow and, I've, and I Have Touched the Sky as well as the events that led from, from the motion picture and it's just a brilliant story. It really, really was. Just, I just had a couple of questions really about that while, while we're on the subject. First of all, what made you write a follow-up to the classic episode? Obviously, you've said about filling in the gap between the two films, but um, what, why that particular episode? Was it a, a one of your favourites of the original series? I, I always liked it, but when I reviewed it for the novel, I realised it had a lot of problems, so it wasn't as good as I remembered. But the, I think the thing is, there was a passing reference in Roddenberry's novelization of the movie to McCoy studying Fabrini medicine on the the new homeworld of the people of Yonata. And so that seemed like something worth following up on. And that kind of, I, I guess it all came from there. <laughs> well, his novelization of the motion picture was really good, actually. And, and, and I actually enjoyed that. So I could see why you wanted to, to expand upon that. And, and yeah. uh, if I, I realized, I think I realized that, well, they, they had a, a computer God, the Oracle in that story. And I guess I realized there could be a resonance between that and the V'ger incident, I, I I figured. I mean, here's this this giant spaceship cloud thing, robot thing that comes in to and hovers above Earth, the capital of the Federation, and almost destroys it, and then has this big, beautiful eruption and ascension to a higher plane of existence. And I thought that's something people are going to notice. There's going to be a reaction to that. And it's going to be big news and it'll affect people. And, and I mean, this is like a transcendent, almost religious event uh, involving an artificial intelligence. And the Fabrini are people who for thousands of years or worshipped a, an artificial intelligence as a god. And that's that's got to have a resonance there. 
I found as well within that story that it was about the crew finding themselves again because obviously there had been that two and a half year gap between the end of the five year mission, Kirk joining the Admiralty, everyone going their separate ways apart from some of the crew who who oversaw the refit, and it's about them learning to um, trust each other again. Is that is that what you intended and for that part of the story that they would gel again? to how we saw them in the Wrath of Khan. In an ideal world, I might have taken a little more time getting them to uh, gel completely, but I, I knew this might be my one and only chance to explore the period, so I figured I should get everything wrapped up pretty much by the end of the book. So, yeah, yeah pretty much. Because it, <laughs> so it, it was good that you explained things like why the science station was going to be moved and... and from because because it's just the little things that I picked up and and it was brilliant because obviously in the motion picture it was behind Kirk and then by the time of the Wrath of Khan it was where it was in the original series and and those sort of details and and it was just wonderful. My last question on on, on this particular story is um for the refugees of the Fabrini um, this story is about whether to remain in the past or embrace the future of their new homeworld. What were your influences for this part of the story? Was it anything going on in, in real-time events when you wrote the story? Just in general, the, the history of the Middle East, which I had been studying in college. I, I took a course in Mideast history from uh, Dr. Elizabeth Frierson, who's one of, I, I think, the country's leading uh, experts in Mideast history, and I learned quite a lot about that the history of that culture and uh, dispelled a lot of myths, and I... And I thought it was worth doing an allegory to that, how the the conflict in the modern Middle East is not so much about them versus the West, as, as pundits here tend to assume, but is really more about a conflict between the forces of tradition and modernization in the region itself and the extent to which outside interference on the side of modernization is often more disruptive than helpful and just sort of basically exploring those those complex dynamics, the violence that it can, that can be inspired by by what can be legitimate fears, even if the uh, actions taken in response to them are totally illegitimate. And so there were, there was a lot there to explore. Moving on a little bit to your Titan books, I know you have written two Titan books, Orion's Hound, Hounds, and Over the Torrent Sea. I'm a particular fan of Riker and Riker and Troy, their relationship together, and the fact that at the end of or at the beginning of Nemesis, actually, they they mentioned that he was going to command his own starship finally. And I was very excited to see this new line of of books for the Titan and Riker and Troy, and the the ship that has the most aliens on it they're not all humans or not all vulcans or or aliens that we're familiar with in the federation and how do you feel about writing the titan books oh it was it was right in my wheelhouse i love writing exotic aliens non-humanoid aliens and uh diverse crews and and really this was a chance to do some of uh, the things i'd wanted to do in my own original Writing with a, a starship crew made of, of all sorts of diverse non-humanoid aliens. In fact, several of the characters that uh, I introduced in the Titan books—well, actually, that that were first introduced in in the previous two books by Andy Mangles and Mike Martin—but that I actually created uh, for the series, like Torvig, the sort of uh, cyborg, and the big sort of crustacean character named Shaka, 
those were characters I, I created for original fiction that I never actually got around to writing. And they sort of my, my plan, as I said earlier, my plans for my original universe changed a lot over the years and kept on changing. And so some ideas fell by the wayside and characters I had planned to write about uh, just sort of fell out of my plans. So I, they were lying around, so they were available to plug into Titan. But anyway, the, uh, the point is that that Titan, it just, it really meshed perfectly with the sort of thing I wanted to write anyway about diverse starship crews exploring the universe and exploring each other's differences. And really, it just, Marco, Marco Palmieri, he was the developer and editor of that series. His, his tastes and mine just meshed so perfectly. So it was just, I, I really, I saw writing Titan as the chance to write the kind of novels that I that I would do on my own as original fiction, I'm, and I'm very proud of my work there. And like I said, I, I was really excited to see the fact that Riker and Troy and Vale were going to get their their own books and and not just show up as as characters perhaps on uh, the Next Generation books. And one of the things that has really drawn me, like you said, is the fact that there are so many different aliens and I've enjoyed uh, your and the other author's characterizations and trying to get us, uh, the readers, to understand the different points of view and culturally of these aliens. And it's, and it's been very nice. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Moving on to a TNG story you wrote, Greater Than the Sum. Now, this is a story set after the events of Nemesis and the relaunch, so to speak, of the TNG novels or leading after Nemesis. And this is the one, This is the story right before David Mack's Destiny trilogy. First of all, was the character of Lieutenant Chen, um, Nerissa Le- Chen, your creation? Yes, uh, Teresa Chen was my own creation. I actually, I actually came up with her like seven years earlier for... Uh, I had a friend who... Uh, was into uh, Dungeons and Dragons and role playing, and I was sort of, and she sort of got me curious about it as well. But I was hesitant to dip my toe into that, so she had this idea to run an email role playing game, just just her and me, in which I would play a Star Trek character who fell through some sort of dimensional rift into a Dungeons and Dragons world, <laughs> <laughs> and that, and the character I created for that was Teresa Chen. Uh, she was Talissa Chen. That at the time, but uh, the previous Next Generation novels had had a character named Talana, and so I didn't want to repeat the TL pattern, so I changed it. That allowed me to coin the abbreviation Triss for her, which is sort of caught on. Well, I have to say that as soon as I started reading about her, I loved the character. I, I really do. And Cena and I had a couple of disagreements over, over this character, but even, even Cena's turned around now but um (laughs) i think she's a brilliant character she reminded me in many ways of and and especially her as the book goes on her relationship towards um captain picard reminded me of ro laren who's also one of my favorite star trek characters that was my intent to uh introduce a character who would sort of shake things up in the way that ro was meant to do well not not in the same way because she's because teresa is definitely a, a flightier personality you know as I say Roe was a great character and and, and I'm, I'm glad that we we Chen was created because over the book she's she's really developed in, into a wonderful character so thank you for that this novel follows on from the death of Admiral Janeway what was it like knowing you'd have to write the book the one after 
Well, I'm not sure that the the Janeway issue really had any effect on what I was doing because I was doing TNG, and that was more that was something that had more impact on the Voyager books, and that was something that uh, Kirsten Beyer dealt with brilliantly in her Voyager novel, Full Circle. But yes, I did have to follow up on well, actually, the previous three. Uh, TNG novels, mm-hmm. uh, Resistance by J.M. Dillard, which was a Borg story, uh, Q&A by Keith DeCandido, which was not a Borg story, but which introduced a couple of uh, major characters that figured in the other novels, and uh, Before Dishonor by Peter David, which was the uh, Janeway one and, and was also a Borg story, and that was the one I had to follow up on. Thing is, there, were, there were some growing pains to the, the early attempts to do a post-Nemesis uh, TNG series, and there were new crew members introduced that didn't quite work out or that ended up not going in the direction they were intended to go or hoped to go. So there were kind of a revolving door with the new crew members. Well, what I tried to do with Greater Than the Sum was just sort of, well, start over and and try to lock the the post-Nemesis command crew into place and, and get a group that would that would mesh together and also to try to um, sort of tie up the loose ends from the previous three books and sort of clarify how they fit together and what they led to and just, just sort of get all that out of the way in order to clear the board for what was coming in Destiny. And so that, that, that was uh, a, lot of, a lot of things I had to do, and it was, it was complicated. I, I was going to ask, actually, because obviously, as you say, you, you, you had all the threads from three previous books. David Mack at the time was uh, right Destiny or had written Destiny, and, and, and it was almost like, well, here's, here's sort of the beginning, here's the end, you've got to lead into this, and you get the middle. Is that how it felt? That's... Uh... That was pretty much it. I had to I had to bridge that gap, and uh, Dave Dave had already completely outlined Destiny, and I think he'd written uh, most of the first book at that point, which which is why uh, Teresa Chen doesn't show up in Destiny until like book two. So, but, but like, like he had created for his outline the new security chief character, Jasminder Chowdhury, and but but I was actually the one who got to introduce her. In greater than the sums and, and sort of work out some of the specifics of her personality so that was sort of a joint creation between us mm-hmm. although although really he deserves the credit for creating her because that, that's the way it works he came up with her first i guess i uh, my my contribution would count as development not creation it, it was very collaborative there were there were things like how transphasic torpedoes worked, the, trend, the, the technology that was given to Voyager and Endgame and that was used to fight the Borg here. Dave and I sort of each came up with our own, wrote our own stuff about how those technologies worked, and then we sort of coordinated and compared notes and, and sort of got on the same page. I think that, I think that was the first time that Dave and I uh, collaborated directly, but uh, we've we've uh, we've done more more of that since then, and we work well together. Oh, that's really good. So, did you have the, uh, David's outline for when you were writing Greater Than the Sum? Uh, oh yes. Yeah, you did. Yeah. So, so that must have been a valuable tool for you. I knew I knew where I had to end up, and and what I had to get out of the way in order to get there. Like like I had to uh, well well like one of the main things that I was that I that my editor Margaret Clark, who was, was my first time working for her. That she uh, asked for, she wanted Picard to be together with. Well, well, Picard and Beverly Crusher had gotten together as a couple in earlier novels in *Death and Winter* by Michael Jan Friedman, 
And Margaret told me, basically, get Beverly pregnant. And I decided, all right, I'll also, I'll also get them married in, or, or have them married before already when the book starts, because Margaret said, we've, we've had wedding stories before in these books, and uh, let's not repeat ourselves, so let's just have them already married. And so, so there, there were some points that I had to hit, some uh, beats I had to deal with. But, but, but the way this works is that it is that we are the one. We may be told get to this point by the end of the book or wrap up this thread in the book, but how we do that is for us to determine. Like actually, Margaret even said, uh, you can you can just get rid of this lingering uh, Borg thread, but your book doesn't even have to be primarily about that. It can be a secondary thread. But I, I wanted the opportunity to delve into some unresolved questions about the Borg and, and do what I do and tie things together and explain inconsistencies and, and sort, of, sort of come up with a unified theory of things. I wanted to do that with the Borg in greater than the sum because, well, after Destiny, when, we, when would we ever have the chance again? Moving on a little bit, you have written uh, one of the books, Choice of Futures, for the Rise of the Federation three-part book series. Well, uh, it's not a three-part book series. Rise of the oh. Federation is uh, open-ended at this point. There are, there are two that I've written, and I expect there will probably be more. Oh, cool. Uh, I've not been able to read any of the Enterprise books, but I'm really excited to start reading those in the new year. And what was it like? You've been writing you know, the original series and also in the 24th century. What was it like for you to go back and write about Enterprise? Well, well, actually, actually, my first proposal, my first suggestion to my editor was uh, to do something with the 21st century, something that started right after the events of Star Trek First Contact and sort of exploring the story of how humanity adjusts to being contacted by aliens for the first time and, and the effect the Vulcans have on society as it rebuilds from World War Three, basically connecting the dots between First Contact and Enterprise, but uh, she thought that uh, my editor thought that there wouldn't be enough familiar characters in that time frame to be of interest. So she suggested, why not pick up Enterprise after the Romulan War books that had just wrapped up? Why not uh, do the beginnings of the Federation? And I was I was wary at first, but then I thought about it and I realized, yeah, there's a lot of potential there. This is um, this is a period of Star Trek history that is virtually untouched. There was uh, Michael Jan Friedman wrote uh, Starfleet Year One. That was uh, set in that same period to try to uh, examine that, but it was it was right before Enterprise came out, so that was kind of uh, kicked out by by the new continuity that Enterprise established. And there really wasn't much else that, that touched on that period, so it was like a, it was a blank slate for me. And, and that's the sort of opportunity I love to fill in the the unexplored gaps of the Star Trek universe. I was a little skeptical about Enterprise at first. I I'd, had mixed feelings about it on first run, but when I revisited it as research for Rise of the Federation, I I found there was a lot to like that I really appreciated about it. Like I think the first season in particular did a really good job of capturing that Star Trek spirit of, of pioneering and exploration and sense of wonder. And also I liked the way it, it tried to focus on smaller, more character-driven stories and build the community of the crew. 
And I think some of that was lost in later seasons as they got as they were sort of pressured to do bigger, more action driven stuff for the sake of ratings. There was some good stuff in later seasons too, especially season four with the all the all the continuity porn that everyone loves. And I'm sort of trying to do a mix of of the best parts of season one and season four, for Rise of the Federation. In in terms of the Enterprise books, have you enjoyed where they have taken the books, and are you glad that they did um, bring everyone's favorite Starfleet engineer Tucker back from the dead? Well, that's it's actually. That's kind of a tricky thing to work with because, well, what the, fi- what the finale of the series established is that as far as anyone in the 24th century is concerned, Trip Tucker died and that was it. So I have to deal with a character who is alive but can never be acknowledged as alive. And that is, that is a challenge, let's say. Something I have to figure out. It's, it's, it's not easy to figure out ways to integrate him in, into the story without uh, without violating that, and but it's but it's an interesting challenge. His return, so to speak, is quite interesting, and who he goes to work for is also very interesting. I'm really looking forward to seeing where you take all these characters, Chris, because um, I'm rewatching Enterprise. I think for the third or fourth time, and because uh, I've really struggled with the series, to be quite honest, and it's like third or fourth time I'm, I'm actually appreciating it more than I did. Isn't that right, Cena? Yes, you are. And I'm doing my first watch of enterprise and I am enjoying it much more than I did. I'd only seen bits and pieces. And so I'm very excited to, in the new year, start reading the enterprise books. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. For, for the listeners next year is really going to be an enterprise year for our show. So we, we can't wait for that. So hopefully you'll come back next year, Chris. And when we've gone through some of these stories, we can have a really in-depth discussion about enterprise. We would love to do that with you. Yes. And by that point, my, my second rise of the Federation novel tower of Babel should be out and and the first one choices of um, futures that came out in june this year i believe so so that that's available listeners for you to go and get now and and of course it's going to be great because it's enterprise so look look out for that moving away from from star trek let's talk about only superhuman which is your first uh, original novel if i'm if i'm right in saying that's right. Um, can you tell us about that, how, how the, the project started and about the story? Well, this is a project that goes back uh, a long time. I've really been, I've been developing it uh, in one form or another since, uh, since 1988. I was always, uh, I, I, although I wasn't much for reading actual comics, I've always been a fan of the idea of superheroes, you know, powerful characters who use their power to help and not to harm because I was uh, I was bullied a lot as a child, and so I was drawn to that kind of the idea of someone who would swoop in and save the day and protect people. And I was intrigued by what I was reading in in science magazines about possible technologies for uh, bionics and genetic engineering and, and things that could give people essentially superpowers in real life. And I wanted to explore what if. What if in in the future that really came to pass? What if there were, if anyone could, was there a way that someone could really be superheroes and and really use superhuman powers in that way? And so I came up with a character named Emerald Blair because I liked the name Emerald. Uh, she was this a superpowered peacekeeping agent in the uh, asteroid belt of the solar system in the uh, early 22nd century. Uh, initially, I envisioned more sort of a government agent type, and I actually wrote a whole spec novel 
about that version of the character but in the in the early 90s but eventually around the turn of the millennium i realized what i had written wasn't very good what wasn't quite working in particular some of the ideas i had had were sort of falling behind the times because i realized that the technology of human enhancement was advancing a lot faster than i thought and also there was so was the literature of of transhumanism there were a lot of books out there about superpowered agents and law enforcement officers and soldiers and the like. And I, ne- I needed something to make my my character, Emerald Blair, distinctive to give it a hook that would make it stand out from the pack. And so I realized what I needed to do was go back to my original inspiration, which was superheroes and comic books, and bring in not just the powers, but the, the tropes of superheroes, the code names, the costumes, the flamboyant personalities, uh, and come up with justifications as plausible as possible for how those could exist in real life. And that, that was the challenge I wanted to undertake, was, was to do a hard science fiction version of superheroes. At the time, I was expecting that it would be the superhero elements that would be the distinctive hook in my transhumanist science fiction novel. But it, it, as it turned out, by the time I finally got the book, sold we were in the middle of a superhero novel boom so it turns out that the hard science fiction elements are what make my superhero novel distinctive it's also been put into audio formats as well i believe which is really good yes company called graphic audio which does they do fully dramatized adaptations of audiobooks it's not just one person reading the text but it's a whole cast of actors and music and sound effects like like a, basically like an old time radio drama but but with narration from the text of the book and they they did that for only superhuman and then a few months ago they did the same for spider-man drowned in thunder so they, they've done two of my books now so i want to let people i want to let people know they can uh, they can buy the audiobook of drowned in thunder which is great because the the paperback is currently out of print and so it's great that people are going to have another way of uh getting to experience that story yeah, I know that well, that's one of the comments that we receive from a lot of listeners is that many of these science fiction and Star Trek books are not put into audio. And so it's great to have that choice because a lot of people don't have time to read but do have time to listen to audiobooks. So it's great to know that two of your books are out in the audio format. Did you have any input into um, their transition to audio? Did they come to you and say, we're going to do this, we're going to do that? Or was was you kept outside that process? Well, no, no as, as I found out since then, the, the schedule they're under doesn't really uh, allow them to consult much with the authors. I was actually, I, I w- I was actually not consulted in the adaptation of only superhuman, but uh, well, but I'm really I was really pleasantly surprised by how close they came to what I had in mind and how well they did most of the casting and the execution. There there were a couple of things I would have advised doing differently given the chance, but for the most part, I'm very happy with it, and I'm also very happy with uh, the Spider-Man adaptation, which worked out very well. And I, I did uh, actually get to uh, meet the graphic audio people actually twice over the past year. First, uh, when I was uh, visiting family in, in the D.C. area where they are based, and I got to go in and do an interview with them. And then I got to meet them again 
at uh, New York Comic Con earlier this month. So they're a nice bunch of people, and we hit it off well. And maybe if, if they do future adaptations of like uh, like my X-Men novel, if that should happen, or any further Emerald Blair novels, if I should get to do those, hopefully uh, there will be some consultation then. Yes, I was going to ask you, is there going to be follow-up stories to uh, for Emerald? Well, I, I hope so. I, I have ideas for a sequel. Um, I've just barely begun the most preliminary conversation with uh, my editor, Greg Cox, about uh, who's also a Star Trek novelist, uh, about the possibility of a sequel, but uh, we haven't found the time to follow up on that yet, but hopefully soon. And what upcoming projects have you got? Well, I, I do have several projects uh, lined up. I've got, I've got some new Star Trek stuff coming, but uh, nothing is, there are no contracts signed yet, so I can't actually say what I do have lined up. <laughs> but but there is more coming from me, more than one thing, and, uh, and hopefully before long I'll be able to talk about it on my blog or elsewhere. So for our listeners, Chris, how can they find out more about you or if they want to contact you? I've got my website, my homepage, uh, at home.fuse.net slash Christopher L. Bennett, all one word. I've got my blog, which is called Written Worlds, and it's at Christopher L. Bennett, no spaces, dot wordpress.com. And I have a Facebook fan page at Christopher L. Bennett Author, no spaces, which is an extension of on Facebook.com. So. Oh, that's great. Some great ways for the listeners to contact you. And, and as we mentioned, we would really love to have you come back on next year and, and, and discuss Enterprise and uh, help us do our reviews of Enterprise in um, the follow-up stories to the series. That would be wonderful. So thank you very much for your time this evening, Chris. Thank you for coming on the captain's table. We've really appreciated that, haven't we, Sina? Yes, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about Star Trek and, and your X-Men and Spider-Man projects and, of course, your, your current project, Only Superhuman. Thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad to be here. And uh, just for the listeners, they, they can pick up your books, uh, your, the usual places such as Amazon or Barnes & Noble, places like that. Is that correct? Uh, yes, yes. Except I think the, uh, the Drowned in Thunder audiobook is – only available from the Graphic Audio website, and they are at www.graphicaudio.net, and you can order it there. That's perfect. We'll put the links in the show notes so that people can know where to go to get those. And uh, Rise of the Federation Tower of Babel will be out in next March, I believe, March of 2014, so it'll be available then. And everything else is available now. And again, thank you so much. We've had a great time. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at the captain's table. And don't forget to turn the page for our next adventure. listening to the captain's table at 10 forward